Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 32, Both Sides Now. As the sun rose on Manhattan, Octavia led the way, with Kick by her side. She couldn't help but dwell on thoughts of Squeak. She trained the boy, worked with him securing the perimeter of City Hall, tried to keep him out of trouble. Now, hurrying from the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, Octavia cursed herself. She shouldn't have brought the boy along. It was her fault he was dead. Hers. This way, Octavia said leading Kick down a long alley, then down an exterior staircase. She kicked open an old wooden door. They fled across damp concrete, navigating an obstacle course of urine, puddles, and feces. Octavia crossed to the other side of the basement, where light peeked in through windows. She halted near a wall of crates below the cracked window pane. Up, she instructed Kick. The teenager did as instructed, he heard Octavia's deep breath, panting as intensely as his own. He was unsure where she was leading him, but he felt strangely confident in her care. Kit cautiously slithered through the tight window. Outside, he crawled. Good, Octavia thought. He was smart enough to keep his head low. If he moved swiftly, silently, maybe he wouldn't get it shot off. Octavia pulled herself through the opening. Suddenly, she was aware of her hunger, aching muscles, pores dripping with sweat, her fatigues covered in sewage and blood. Outside, Octavia dashed to the corner of the nearby intersection. She leaned against cold brick. Kick looked back, then rushed to her side. I hear movement, he said. Yeah, Octavia swallowed hard. Survivors, scavengers in the streets. The odd fellows will be coming out to clean up. Clean up? Kick raised an eyebrow. Octavia nodded. Whatever went down last night. Mutants. Rockheads. Morlocks. Fighting. Scavengers stealing from each other. Whatever it is, the odd fellows clean the streets. Put out fires. Lend medical attention. In exchange for what? Kick asked. Octavia stared into Kick's eyes. He had been through so much. Escaping an encampment in New Jersey following his father and his father's lover into the tunnels under the river. They lived there for years until the sex monkey fell ill. Kick and his father worked tirelessly to improve their lives, defend themselves, and care for the woman. The experience hardened the boy, filled him with distrust, anxiety. Octavia hoped that after all they experienced in a short period of time, Sally's death, Kick's father's death, and now Squeak, she wondered if there was anything she and the odd fellows could offer the teen. What could they do to restore his hope? Look, I'm not going to bullshit you, Octavia said. Too late for that, Kick shrugged sarcastically. Octavia grinned. That's fair. She turned to glance around the corner, into the street. Before she could look the opposite direction, something hit her in the side of her head, knocking her into the wall. She fell to one knee, stunned. 
Kick inched forward, but Octavia's muscular arms swept him back against the wall. She resisted reaching for her head. Instead, Octavia swung out into the sidewalk, her rifle raised. There, she saw a mutant. The creature's snarling face was more mouth than anything else. Round eyeballs dangled between long, sharp teeth. Ginny up the slug throwers, bitch, or I'll slaughter us both. Without hesitation, Octavia pulled her trigger. Red mist spattered, filling the air between Octavia and the mutant's outstretched claws. Kick recoiled, looked down. He hadn't even had time to chamber around, or... Then he checked again. He was out of ammunition. The mutant wobbled backwards, but fell forward. A muffled roar in its chest erupted, then fell silent. Come on, Octavia waved Kick out into the street. He followed. Octavia, your head. Yeah, she paused for a second, touched the laceration, the forming bruise. It hurts. What can you do? She crossed the street, scanned the rising terrain. Octavia's local 151. Octavia spun one way, kicked the other. The sun was now in their eyes. Octavia! Octavia now heard vehicles converging on their position. She recognized the rumbling sound of a modified backhoe. Harley-Davidson motorcycle engines revved nearby. Kick faced Octavia, fear in his eyes. It's all right, she said. They're with us. Cannibalized vehicles flanked by motorcycles blocked both sides of the street. The odd fellows surrounded Octavia and Kick. Armed men on foot took up strategic positions around them. When Octavia finally caught her breath, she was relieved. She approached the leader of the reconnaissance crew, one of Hoffa's lieutenants, he was a middle-aged man, with scars in his crew cut. Octavia knew his name was Adam, but didn't know him well. She held her weapon over her head, her arms and hands visible. Adam walked up to Octavia. He turned slightly so she could clearly see the distinct odd fellow's tattoo on his shoulder. He lowered his hand, gesturing for the woman to be at ease. Been looking for you, Octavia. Yeah, she said, putting down her hands, letting her rifle dangle. She gazed down at rough, blood-stained palms. She refrained from offering her hand to Adam, who was scanning Kick. Where's Squeak? Adam asked. We looked all over for him. Figured he must be with you. The sense of relief Octavia felt just moments ago dissipated. It fell, like so much weight, into the expanding pit of her gut. Major Leonard McGillicuddy lay in a hospital bed, eyes closed, intubated, unmoving. Dr. Miral Ganaya hovered over him, watching fluids drip into his veins, watching color return to his deep brown complexion. Waist-high robots nearby read the encephalocardiogram, the echocardiogram, a toxicology report. Miral knew she should focus on the patient as he was, but her thoughts retreated to the laboratory and the bowels of the project. She couldn't help but wonder, what happened to Cuddy? What happened to him on the surface? Or was this her fault? Some slight miscalculation? Some error caused by exhaustion, inattention? Meryl sat beside her patient, a hand to her olive-colored chin, pondering what happened, all that needed to happen, what she wanted to happen. Law enforcement evacuated sensitive areas, pushed back against mass dissidents, 
Common areas stabilized. Robots and volunteers moved in. Commerce shut down. Production halted. Citizens retreated to their compartments. Others gathered at shattered automats, pushing, shoving to obtain stale, prepackaged food. Long lines formed in cafeterias, food dispensaries. Restrooms were packed on all levels. The squalor overflowed with contaminated water. Danielle Devenu and Donna Chang left the Phoenix Project Command Center. They exited the lift, walked side by side in the cool, quiet hall. It's getting worse, Chang stated the obvious. Danielle nodded, distracted. She thought about her conversation with General Castro and the convalescent home. They descended the short ramp to the outside of the laboratory. Dissidents hurled smoke bombs and other handmade explosives at the metal vault doors. The steel and fiberglass held, but floors and walls were streaked with spray paint and other visible damage. They want to destroy us, Chang said, running her hand over a discolored wall. They know about our work. No, Danielle said, placing a folded hand under unpainted lips. The explosives were minimal, not powerful enough. This was to send a message. The project administrator took a long breath, then nodded at Chang. Donna punched her password into the keypad at the right of the laboratory doors. What message? Chang asked as the vault doors opened. Their numbers are growing, Danielle said, leading the way into the lab. She took a seat at the metal table in the center of the room. Chang stood at her console of computers and multicolored wires. What do we do now? Danielle surveyed the room. Brilliant blue eyes passed over the transference modules, medical terminals. Chang's red notebooks stacked neatly at the end of the table. You said your father's work on this equipment hinted at the possibility of upgrades, she said to the engineer. Chang nodded, reluctantly. Her work to follow the coded information left to her in the notebooks was deemed irrational, impulsive. Do what you can, Chang. Danielle pushed herself to a standing position with both hands. She twisted to her left, right, cracking her back. If we're running out of time, we need to do everything we can to ensure success. Of course, Danielle. Somewhere in the A-level, Dr. John Bath slept in the narrow, spotless compartment he shared with his roommate. John lay on his back. His hands shook intermittently, uncontrollably, as if he consumed too much caffeine, stimulants, other drugs. Eyes wandered beneath dark eyelids. In his dream, John saw himself in a desert, someplace on the surface of the world he had never really been. He was buried up to his chest in dense sand. John struggled to free his arms. He labored in vain. Eyes squinting, John's vision was blinded by the sun, high overhead. Heavy, powerful. It felt so close. Something John could reach for. Something he could touch. He sensed someone nearby. Footsteps in sand. Then, a square body blocked out the bright star. Sweat dripped into John's eyes, down his pointed nose, into his mouth. You think you're so smart, a voice whispered into Bath's sand-filled ears. But the ones who believe they're smart rarely are. The face and body withdrew. Bath spied a Janus-like creature, that single-headed form with two faces, a man's in the front, a woman's at the rear, both whispering, 
There is no hatch. This is not the way it's supposed to be, John thought. The body spun, kept spinning. John tried focusing on the face. Was it his face? His body? No. It was his father. His mother. Then, John Bath forced himself awake. For the next few hours, he slept lightly, dreamed deeply. He awakened, slept, fantasized. He bolted upright, screaming. General Benjamin Castro was increasingly aggravated, but frustration emboldened his spirit, gave him purpose. He wandered the Phoenix Project unattended, struggling with braces to stand, to move. Seclusion in the off-limits laboratory made Benjamin distant, dependent. He longed to be among the people, to see the children of those he once worked with at the United Nations. He hoped their presence would jar his memory, restore what he didn't know, give his struggle meaning. Castro was aware of faces turning his direction. Some gawked, while others glanced, darted away awkwardly. Did they recognize him? Feel sorry for him? Had word already spread from the convalescent home about his indictment of the Phoenix Council? It had only been hours, but General Castro wondered, was his plea for the people on the surface now reaching those in this this claustrophobic underground sanctuary? Benjamin pushed on, hoping his revelation would spread like wildfire, that it would compel the council to take more decisive measures, that the population the council represented would move them to take action. He glanced at placards and signage on each wall, gateway, or room. Old eyes wandered up to the pinhole surveillance cameras Bath spoke of with disgust. Benjamin looked, grinned broadly. Who do they think they're fooling, he thought. Who the hell do they think they are? Seated in a cluttered subsection, below the Phoenix Law Division, flat and curved screens surrounded Gabriel Princip. Monitors. Televisions. View screens of various age and functionality. Some were provided by the Law Division. Others Princip found, cannibalized for his own purposes. No one seemed to notice or care. Each served their master, who, with a few clicks, brought up images of the Phoenix Project, its public places and common areas, hidden passageways, secret hideouts. Gabriel saw the hospital, the hallway outside John Bath's apartment, the corridor where General Benjamin Castro paused to stare, grin, glare. Princip watched his lover, Danielle Devenu, and the Phoenix Project's chief engineer exit an elevator near the laboratory. He felt a great sense of purpose perched here, scanning each image. But he took no pleasure scrolling through scenes of his fellow citizens. He took no pride in what he was doing, or what he was about to do. Gabriel zoomed in on the secluded, frost-covered storeroom in the back of the cafeteria. He watched a small crowd gathered surreptitiously, shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip. Seated or standing, Everyone listened attentively to the sermon espoused by Maricela Santiago. It was ironic, Gabriel thought, that Santiago, the so-called lunch lady, railed persuasively against the Phoenix Council, the central processor. The more she shifted between intense emotion and calm discipline, the more compelling she was. What Gabriel knew, of course, what his profession and personal investigations awarded him, was a unique insight into Maricela Santiago. 
he knew the lunch lady was both a leader of the dissidents and a member of the Phoenix Council. Both roles made her his target and his pawn. Leaning forward, Princip pressed a button on his keyboard. He rolled a round controller so he saw each face in the crowd. Facial recognition technology identified each dissident or onlooker. Gabriel scanned, clarified the faces. He locked his sights on the young, blue-haired associate professor, Harumi Gale. He watched her carefully. He knew her. He enlisted Gale's help in manipulating her lover and mentor. Despite their shared goals and Princip's efforts to charm the woman, he had no sympathy for her. After all, Gabriel wasn't one of the so-called dissidents. His motives were his own. Deceitful, elitist bitch, Gabriel spoke softly to himself. He held down a switch and pulled a wire-thin microphone to his lips. Execute warrants for all principles. Repeat, execute warrants for dissidents in the cafeteria. Lifting his finger from the switch, Princip leaned back in his cushionless swivel chair. He watched the screens, scanned multiple angles, views, as Lieutenant Baker and Corporal Reed raided the cafeteria. Clad in riot gear, armed with truncheons and tasers, law-deficient officers honed in on their prey. Young recruits and volunteers trailed behind them. "'Stay where you are! Arms in the air!' Baker ordered. The law division flooded the cafeteria. Heads twisted every direction. Agitated bodies stood, then sat. Legs bobbed up and down nervously. No one put up a fight or gave the lieutenant and his men static. Gabriel watched one of the smaller monitors. The officers entered the kitchen storage area. Blow it, Baker commanded his protege. The freezer door was swiftly overcome by an incendiary device. Gabriel's monitor was clouded with smoke. Speakers crackled. Everyone down! Down! Corporal Reed shouted as he and the lieutenant threw open what was left of the kitchen vault door. Princip maneuvered a joystick. While other dissidents scrambled, some crawled over each other. Maricela Santiago and Harumi Gale stood still, as if ignoring the chaos. We're here to execute a warrant, by order of Colonel Dana Marsh, Lieutenant Baker called into the cell. All dissident suspects, he didn't finish. Three women pushed at the crumbling metal door. Men hoisted frozen boxes, hurling them at the law enforcement officers. Gabriel grumbled as he watched the scene. Fight back, you sheep. Baker and Reed pushed citizens directly in front of them, forcing two to the ground. Baker walked to the center of the room. Reed lingered nearby. Take him, Lieutenant Baker's voice crackled across Gabriel's monitors. Corporal Reed steadied his rifle. He fired several rounds of non-lethal bags at the men, quickly subduing them. He paused, avoiding shooting the women. The female dissidents fled behind the lieutenant and corporal, hurling themselves headlong into the arms of crowd control officers. There was nowhere to go. Inside the freezer, Lieutenant Baker trod slowly up to Maricela Santiago. The old woman stood her ground, her body limber, calm in the center of the fray. Lunch lady, Baker said coolly, his square chin aimed at Santiago. We have a warrant. You have nothing. Santiago retorted. The lieutenant shook his head, scanned the room. His shoulders slumped as relaxed as the woman before him. From his safe, distant surveillance post, Gabriel watched attentively, unsure what would happen next. He leaned forward, zooming in on the lieutenant standing a foot from the dissident's leader. Gendarme pig! 
Santiago cursed, spat at the law enforcement officer. As if he expected this outburst, Baker turned slightly towards the corporal. Reed stood sternly, rifle raised, hands shaking. The lieutenant looked Santiago over. He lowered his weapon. With one swift blow, Baker plunged his fist into the rail-thin woman's stomach. An audible cracking of ribs rippled through Gabriel's speakers. Baker sent the woman to the cold floor. Harumi Gale stood nearby, watching. How masculine of you, Lieutenant. She held out her hands, palms up. This is the end of your little group, Baker insisted. He nodded at Reed, a prepared gesture signaling the corporal to subdue and cuff the academic. Gabriel watched, reached forward to switch his control of the cameras elsewhere. He heard Harumi's cool, distinct voice speak clearly. You have only encouraged the cause you'll never understand, Lieutenant. This finished nothing. A wave of anxiety, almost like nausea, passed through Princip. Ashamedly, he killed surveillance of the savage images, switched his observation to the calm halls of the Phoenix Project. His mission accomplished, the next step in his plan complete, Gabriel longed to get back to work, to watch something bland, the dull goings-on in the world outside his workstation. There's time before the next step, Gabriel thought. There's time, but not much. Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with contributions from Cole Hoopengarner and Willem DeGrieff. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner. Music by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. The sound effects used in the production of Aftermath are used with permission by the creators, and links to these sound effects can be found in the description section of each episode. Please visit our website, aftermathpodcast.net, for updates, original artwork and music, character dossiers, and more. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at Fire Pit Creative Group Official, on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Facebook at facebook.com slash group, and on YouTube at firepitcreativegroup. Aftermath and its story, characters, music, and artwork are copyrighted by Firepit Creative Group. 